Whether you're at a game table, in your comfiest chair reading a book, or listening at home, there's nothing like a great adventure story. But they don't happen by accident. Welcome to The Joy of GMing, a special interview series on the craft of great gaming. There's just something magic about sitting down to a good table with great friends, isn't there? If you're a lifelong gamer or a newbie rolling up your first character sheet, if you're a DM or a GM or just can't get enough tabletop talk in your day, this is the show for you. Each episode will bring you amazing guest speakers to talk about writing games and running them, building fantastic worlds and compelling story arcs, and oh-so-useful tricks of the trade. Hear some amazing stories, get inspired for your next game, and join us for an hour and a half or so of lively conversation. I'm Casey Jones, writer and voice actor. Over the last dozen years, I've written and produced screenplays, children's animation for TV and film, graphic novels, stage plays, murder mysteries, and audio adventures. I've also been writing and running tabletop games for over 10 years. Join me as we dive deep into creativity with fellow experts in making stuff up. This sister series to Anywhere But Now, our Doctor Who actual play podcast, will be released between mods or episodes with our ongoing serialized show. We'll cover some making of and behind the scenes tidbits of our latest mod as well, so do stick around. Our special guest today is Tommy Garber, a director and writer originally from San Diego, California. He's a lifelong D&D dungeon master. Tommy uses his varied background in stand-up comedy, martial arts, and filmmaking to weave story-focused campaigns with unique settings for each group he leads. Whether it's D&D, Star Wars, Edge of the Empire, or indie games like Wander Home, Colossal, and more. Tommy, welcome to the show. Hey, hello. Thank you for having me. You have the distinct honor of being the first director we've had in the guest chair, Tommy. Congratulations. That, that is shocking to me. I feel like directors and DMs are one and the same. I'm, every, every director I talk to is worth their salt as DM to a D&D game. There is definite overlap. You've directed award-winning shorts and even a music video for the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a fun one. That is a fun one. I quite enjoyed it. How does it feel stepping from the director's chair into the dungeon masters? For me, it's always been just like flexing the, the same muscle. And so that was kind of what got me back into DMing was, mm -hmm. you know, we were all doing the COVID lockdown and I had some friends who were similarly kind of dealing with the isolation of all of that and being stuck at home. And so I thought, you know, it's a good time to get back into it and not a whole lot of things to direct during that time. No. Uh, so it was a great time to, to hop back into there and tell a story with a group and lead that flow and all of that felt very in line with directing and DMing and so so really hopping back and forth between the two is is natural it's it's seamless almost yeah I would definitely agree with that I have not directed film but I have directed for the stage there is definitely overlap with the okay and this is the direction we're trying to go in now <laughs> and reminding you of your of your inspiration and your motivation yeah, I, I haven't directed theater, but I actually think that that experience is closer. I think that doing that is even an even better transition into DMing. Oh, sure. You have that that live in the moment kind of thing and the, that the sort of tools that actors on stage play with are so, so similar to what really good players do. Same with the prep. The kind mm -hmm. of prep that a good actor does is very similar to what a good player does. Absolutely. Working with actors, it's one thing to have an actor or a player who comes in and knows their stats back and forward and knows how to roll all their attacks and their 
their reactions. But yeah, sometimes it can be handy to have that little extra knowledge of the character that you may have built with the player, you know, establishing that background, that backstory that brings a little extra context. Yeah, and actually, the same way that I would with an actor on a project, I sit in on my character creation processes with every player I have. Oh, yeah? So once they have a concept that they like, or even if they don't yet, similar to a session zero, but individual. Mm -hmm. And it gives me a chance to also check in on things like phobias and things that you want to avoid beforehand, so you you don't even have to have them bring it up on their own in a session zero. Mm -hmm. And then also setting up their character and their backstory in a way that lets me inform the world, um, which is a really fun way to to approach world building is kind of backwards, is from the characters that you have already. And a good actor will ask those same sort of questions of themselves. I talk a lot about that um, that video game Firewatch. You play as a guy who's out in the in the national parks kind of forest, and he's in one of those watchtowers watching for fires. And then obviously there's sort of a dr- drama fallout thing there. But at the beginning of the game, you're hiking out there, and it's sort of uh, it's railroaded, you know, you're you're on a path that no, you know where you're going, but it's mm-hmm. asking you questions about the past, about how you named your dog and all of these things, and none of them affect the events that follow, but they immediately make you invested in the character you're playing, and that's such an effective tool, and so in the same way when I'm DMing, I like to ask things that may or may not ever come up again, and a lot mm-hmm. of good DMs do this, but, you know, what's your character's favorite food? What's a, a smell they associate with home? Who was your childhood mm. best friend? And that gives you a lot to play with later uh, if you ever, you know, given the opportunity to bring up a food that makes them homesick when they're passing through a place or, or a childhood friend that you run into. Those kinds of things are such good tools that come from, you know, character building sessions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I fully admit in my earliest days of GMing and trying to put a game together, Like, if I got details from a player, then I would find ways to work that into the existing world. Thankfully, since then, character building can inform world building. So that instead of trying to, you know, slide them into a shelf somewhere that's been pre-built, we can actually shape the world around them and make sure that they have experiences they can walk right up to that, like you say, remind them of their favorite foods from home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that kind of backwards play lets you have all of these flexible tools and you're not locked in either. If you you find a way to better fit their character or to make Mm -hmm. their early choices exciting late game, because sometimes you make those choices early on and you're like, man, I, I don't know about that choice now. You know, it's been a couple months and do I really want my hometown to be like this? And so it's good to keep it fresh and and you get to kind of mix those things up, but still stay true to those those core decisions. Brian Gosling in Place Beyond the Pines, again, another tangential story, but he chose his tattoos at the beginning of shooting that film. And then a, a few, I think, weeks into shooting, he was talking to the director like, I don't want these face tattoos anymore. And the guy's like, that sucks, man. That's how tattoos work. So, you know, like, you, you're stuck. You're stuck with those tattoos for the rest of this movie, and and that kind of decision making is effective. But then also, you know, you're playing a game. You want everyone to have fun. So if something is truly boring or truly isn't lining up anymore, but it hasn't mm-hmm. affected the driving story of the game. There's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with changing that. No, uh, in in a way that that works for everyone. Absolutely. In, in my in my current campaign, I have a player who his hometown is is owlin bird people based. Uh, and nice. their beasts of burden are all dinosaurs. 
So instead of horses or donkeys, they have dinosaurs around. And it's such a fun, campy bit that we're doing with that. The place is named after the island from Jurassic Park. I mean, we fully embrace the silliness of that. Um, And we haven't gone there in game yet, but every now and then we get to hint at it. There are moments where you get excited about visual things that you could do with that and you want to change them. But sometimes you need to let them explore their own world in their mind and they run it through you before it becomes part of the world permanently. Yes, absolutely. Those preconceived expectations that get mixed up in the head with personal experience and personal memory. And then on the flip side of that, we're still talking about a game also, and people have preconceived ideas of how these games work and how game characters work. And so you do get those stereotypical, overly dark backstories of characters whose parents are, the Disney movie parents are dead kind of thing. And Mm -hmm that sort of stereotype because that's what they think those stories have to be. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons I really love playing with people who have not played tabletop games before or specifically D&D before. Now that's changing a bit with all of the media centered around that. Even if you haven't played, you have an idea of what it's like in your head. But people who truly don't preform that idea of what the game is, they can be really fun to play with. And I don't mind this sort of teaching learning process of that early on. Oh, yeah. Also is a fun way to explore game mechanics and creativity. People who don't understand how strict the rules can feel sometimes, always have the mm-hmm. most creative solutions to things. It'd be wrong to call it beginner's luck. One of our players, Dora, is an absolute wonder. She makes all these delightfully chaotic decisions as her PC calamity hap, and neither she nor her character really know that much about the world of Doctor Who. And honestly, it has made the games even more enjoyable. Her experiences, both as a player and as a character, are that much fresher. Yeah. Because there are things that someone who's well-versed in the show might immediately pick up on or casually notice that go completely under the radar for her. And narratively, it gives you an excuse to reiterate or re-explain or even delve into the specifics of how you want to approach a type of alien race or character in your story Mm -hmm. that someone might assume if they already know they've seen the show they've seen some other source material you know they think oh i know what that is but that's not always interesting to listen to as a listener oh everybody on the show knows what it is so the dm didn't spend time explaining it and i haven't seen that part or or i missed that episode you know so it's a great a, a character who is a fish out of water is a great tool for introducing the world and making sure that everyone is on the same page about the world that you're exploring and playing in. Absolutely. But it's also a really good litmus test for how clear the storytelling is. Like, even if Calamity doesn't quite grasp the severity of a given situation, I can usually tell barometer-wise if Calamity is following along at least what everything what is going on versus oh crumbs it's the daleks or oh crumbs it's the cybermen or like as long as she is able to follow and to keep up and to save the day more than once i have to say with solutions that have absolutely nothing to do with anything in the show proper is just so refreshing it really is yeah and you have a good a good divide between player and character there too. If the player understands enough to what is going on, but their character is not supposed to, that's mm-hmm. just a good player if they're playing that effectively. And then, you know, you get into the, the difference between that and a metagaming player who they maybe know more than their character should, and a, a really enjoyable player at your table will separate that knowledge really effectively. 
and that can feel just as fresh as long as they're, you know, being cognizant of that difference. My character doesn't know this thing, even though, yeah, I've fought this kind of creature before. I generally know how it works. I love a good player who can avoid metagaming, you know, where they can keep what they know as the player separate from what the PC knows. You basically just set up an introduction for one of our players, Kate, who plays Maeve, a reporter from the 1890s. Kate, the the player, they know a fair amount about the world of Doctor Who, but Maeve, the character, is, you know, completely new to everything. They have mentioned once or twice that uh, it's been, even if Maeve gets her pants scared off her, Kate's having a lovely time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's always good to know with any any scary horror bit you're doing, you know. F there's a difference between fun horror and fun scary, and the character is terrified and the player is not actually losing their mind mm -hmm. or actually scared of you as the GM. Well, I feel like there's an important distinction to make between terror and horror. Like, yeah, our bread and butter is terror, the anticipation of the scary thing as it gets closer. And try not to linger too long on horror, which is the aftershocks, the wake of the scary thing. Mm. I think that's interesting because in in D and D, I think such a common uh, concept is cosmic horror. We mm. really buy into the the long extended horror, the realization horror, the the sort of world of horror that underlays war or monstrous creatures. Those sort of things take a little bit longer than a jump scare or not that all terror is a jump scare, but, but exactly. you're, right. you're exploring that, that horror a little bit more, which is not really the genre that I love to do, but I find it to be a very effective tool in D&D specifically. One of my favorite sessions to run with a group, um, with any any group. This is, by the way, this is my biggest general DM tip is just to steal. As long as you're not doing a publicized podcast show like you are, so you shouldn't steal. But stealing <laughs> is, is such a good way as a DM to learn, to see what other people do really effectively, and to just take those tools and make them your own. And mm -hmm. one of my favorite sessions to run that at this point most people online have heard of is the False Hydra. Mm. The False Hydra, for those who are listening and maybe don't know, is a creature that sings a song and whenever it is singing the town that is in it is taking over essentially sort of living in the sewers or hidden somewhere they cannot remember it and they can't really perceive it and then every person or thing that it eats uh, is basically wiped from existence so if your friend or party member was eaten by this thing you would forget that they ever existed until right. you are out of its song out of its grasp and it can be a really fun way to to mess with your players and make them sort of question the world they're in in a way that's less uh, visually based than like mm -hmm. say a mimic. A mimic tends to be, then then they're asking every now and then, is this chest a mimic? Is this door a mimic? It's like, okay, well, I've played that one out a little bit. This one is more about discussing the world and discussing how the players and the characters and the NPCs are are perceiving the world. And a really mm -hmm. fun tool to use with that one is to, to have a character that you act as if has been part, you know, part of the party the whole time that was already eaten that they've already forgotten. And so remember on this adventure how this character helped you so much? And they're like, no. And it's like, exactly. You and then don't you got remember to get, you, Yeah, exactly. You don't remember. And that's such a fun way to, to get them to sort of interact with this monster in a unique way. Um, mm. And then that sort of, that's, I don't know that that really qual qualifies as cosmic horror, but it gets into that world of things that affect your memory that, that you can't really 
duplicate in a film because as soon as that thing is perceived by the audience, then they know the trick. And mm. so so it, it allows you to do something very unique to the table. And that's why that one is so, so fun. Um, but mm. there are a lot of very similar creatures and things that you can do with your tables. And then there's the bad version of that where you, I always hear like DM horror stories of like tricking people into killing kids. And they're like, just kidding, that thing you killed was a child. And you're like, why, why would you do that? Why would you do that to your table? Why would you do that to anybody? Uh, so there's, you know, there's a level of experience with knowing what kind of version to do with that. Yeah, if something like that were going to happen at a table, I think I would personally introduce something in the same ballpark of tone within the first 10 minutes so yeah. that it does not come out of nowhere and it warns the players ahead of time. Yeah, and you want to you want to scale up to it. Yeah, you want to mm. you want to make sure in your adventure as a whole that you're not doing, you know, the, the tabletop equivalent of Tangled of exploring mm. a world with excitement and color and just bright happy adventure and then all of a sudden you're in doom. Like you don't you don't want to you don't want to do those without warning unless that was the basis of your campaign that everyone knew it was coming. You want to make sure that things are on on scale and and working in, in your in your world. I mean, even if we went from something like tangled into something as dark as say the black cauldron, like you would still want to brace your players for like, okay, we are taking a step into the darker woods here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fun transition to make as long as you're doing it in a way that's effective. <laughs> One of the things I love about not only Doctor Who, but games like Dungeons and Dragons, which have produced worlds and campaign settings in outer space, in cyberpunk cities full of skyscrapers a mile tall, or gothic horror settings. You know, we've got Space Jammer, Eberron, Ravenloft, and all these other settings where you can have a different kind of genre experience using the same mechanics. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I love about Doctor Who is that I can take them on similar trips from mod to mod, because depending on where they land, they might be walking into a slightly creepy mystery or a gallery full of terrors or an old west vignette <laughs> yeah, yeah you know which is which is closer to a simple adventure story and the week after that they trip right into cosmic horror i love that yeah that flexibility yeah. once you have the established mechanics is mm -hmm. all on the the gm the dm to say you know how flexible can you be with that i love to run a murder mystery in D D, and D D does not have the tools for that and i think a lot <laughs> of people who run D D are like D D is the only system that you know it's the big one i don't really feel that way and there's nothing wrong with taking things that work from other systems and sort of mashing them together or running. I mean, honestly, we shall be running something other than D&D at this point. But but it's such a good way to look at that. I Genuinely, I run what is essentially a game of Clue at least nice. once with every group that I play with. I love to do that. I love to introduce a cast of characters who are new and then somebody uh -huh. dies while you're in the other room and then mm -hmm. you start questioning people. And every it is so fun, whether they get it right or wrong and they accuse the wrong person, it gives you such good fallout to work with. It gives you such good cast of characters to add that they identify very quickly because you get to do such unique kind of campy and silly characters with a clue setting and, and that's just that's, it's such a fun way to mix up the pacing of of especially D&D &D where it turns into you know combat investigation uh, travel combat investigation like that kind of rotation you really want to mm -hmm. you want to give it some life and, and that's such a good way to do it and and uh, I think like you're talking about uh, switching location is such a good way to do that too 
Um, and you're talking about hopping from place to place with such different settings. And I was going to ask about this in general because sure. you're, you're you're talking about timelines. And you, in particular, in your world, you have two timelines to work with. You have the Doctor Who timeline, the, mm-hmm. and you know, timey wimey. It's timeline is <laughs> not really the right, right way to describe that, but exactly. but the the things that happen in the show that sort of canon. Mm-hmm. And then you also have the timeline of humanity, right? And you're not always going to Earth. You're not always going to past or present or future Earth. But when you do, you have that real timeline. And then your characters, your, your players have an expectation of what happens in that time. And I wonder how much you stay true to history or how much you stay true to canon when you're doing something like that. Because we talk a lot about prophecy. And one of my current players is a divination wizard, which is so fun to play with. And so setting up things that should happen. And then uh-huh. also our our campaign currently is really based in the history of the land. And so those two things, first of all, it's a lot to keep straight. But then also, you know, if you set up a prophecy, does that thing have to happen? And mm. messing with those expectations can be just as fun. So do you ever mess with, I, I like, I want to say history, but it would be the future of the moment. The expected history of, you know, the result <laughs> of uh, of a battle or of a historical event. Do you like, do you twist that around ever in this or in other campaigns that you do? What an incredible question. The answer is kind of, of course, I've run tables for Doctor Who before, but I've never done a full 12-story series that I was putting out there and saying, okay, this is going to be like a season of television. Strap in. One of the things I wanted to stick with from the very beginning was cause and effect. Things the players do leave an impact, and sometimes it's a big one. The nice thing about recording this now is that it will be available after they have run the first half, at least, of an upcoming Western mod. (laughs) Okay, I'm looking forward to that. I love that. It's called Another Man's Gold, as in the second half of the phrase, one man's garbage is another man's gold. It takes place in what is supposed to be a ghost town. No signs of life. And when the TARDIS gets there, it is a bustling, going concern. It is a boom town. And part of the mod is figuring out what's changed, why things are off course, solving the mystery, but also inadvertently or not, also ensuring that it winds up a ghost town again, just like it was supposed to. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I I love the idea of setting that expectation and then diverting it at the beginning in a way that presents questions, that makes them wonder why this and do we have to fix it? And if we do, how Mm -hmm. do we go about doing that? That's that's a lot of fun to play with, for sure. It absolutely is. And circling around to the subject of murder mysteries, because whodunits and even reverse whodunits are near and dear to my heart. There was a mod that's undergoing renovations for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that my players are giving me so much to work with, with their personal goals, that I want to move things around and make room for what they really want to do so that I can circle back to what I really want to do, including a murder mystery. Writing a murder mystery for a game can be so fun because, just like you said, you've got your cast of memorable, distinct characters who are very different from each other, but part of it is also coming up with little profiles for each of those characters, each of those suspects, so that I know ahead of time how they're going to react if they are wrongfully accused, if they are rightly accused, who are their friends in the castle, who are their enemies in the castle, who are they going to lie about, who are they going to try and misdirect you towards. 
it's one thing to give your characters a puzzle to figure out. It is another to present them with a puzzle that grinds the momentum to a halt. Absolutely. Especially if you're doing something like a whodunit where that becomes your whole session. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're sitting down for one time to play this and the whole time is this one task. You don't want it to feel slow. You don't want it to feel like, I, what, I've what i already asked all the questions. What do I do now? You want to be able to keep that momentum going. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing for the cast of characters, I mean, this obviously doesn't work for the audio medium, but for playing that at a table, I love to have an image of all the people who are involved mm-hmm. up on the wall. Uh, I have great note-taking players, so it's always very fun to hear back what they interpreted from certain conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes midway through a session, I'll allow them to reflect as a group. You know, they're talking to each other and talking about what they put together, and I'll hear how they're putting clues together and go, actually, that's a lot more interesting than what I had planned. Let's do that. And you, you divert a little bit, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I, I do always know who the murderer was ahead of time and, and how they did it. And then you, you move around there. And like you're saying, the consequences of that kind of thing, you're talking about a consequence built storyline, mm-hmm. something that sort of snowballs as you go. Yes. In a murder mystery, you get such a solid consequence. You either caught a murderer, which is a great triumph for your group, or you framed, essentially framed someone for murder and maybe got them arrested. They had, they have a grudge against you, and also now the murderer gets murder away. Is free. And so that that is such a fun tool to play with. And and again, in my current session, we did run a murder mystery, and they did accuse the wrong person. Oh. And so that person has a major grudge against them now. And that's just a fun person to have floating around in the world. I didn't even pay that off immediately. I waited four sessions for them to run into that character again. And that's that's such a fun way to to expand the people that they're worried about running into, looking over their shoulders a little bit. And, and it can really, really pay off. Absolutely. Meanwhile, 30 miles behind you, rain falls on a jail cell. <laughs> Revenge! Cries the fist, shaking exactly. through the jail, through the bars. I love it. One way I keep things moving is to make sure that the solving the whodunit is not the reason they showed up in the first place. Yeah. They show up to the location for a social event, whether it's a wedding or a coronation or a third thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's classic whodunit setup. Mm -hmm. That event is still unfolding with the consequences of the murder investigation and the murder itself causing several wrinkles. Yeah, and it gives you an opportunity to mix in other elements of your world as well. So when we did that, it was a religious ceremony. Mm. They were there to witness essentially the opening of a new temple. Mm -hmm. And during that ceremony, someone was killed or just after. And to play that out with the consequences of these differing religious, I mean, in D&D especially, you have this huge pantheon. Mm -hmm. Uh, all these different people who do or do not follow this one temple's religion to then have them in the same room accused of murder. You get to explore that pantheon a little bit. You get to explore the way that the followers of that world interact with it. That's absolutely great. Although now I've got the portmanteau in my head, Doctor Who Done It. So we definitely have to have yeah, I mean, one. you have to. We yeah. have to. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, write that down. Uh, it's in the recording. TM, 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 Get that in there. Yeah, we'll definitely... Now that it's been said aloud, we absolutely need a proper whodunit in this second season of Anywhere But Now. I love that you're you're already mapping those as seasons because that's how I think of my tables games. Mm-hmm. Even though we're not recording, we're not publishing, it's such an effective like structure for your your DM perspective. Mm-hmm. Once once this season wraps up, is it the final season? Does everything wrap up or am I transitioning us to another another villain, another adventure, another thing. And what's that hook? And how do they snowball into each other? How do they affect one another? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and I'm having a really great time with that now. This group and most groups, I don't actually have a big bad planned mm-hmm. ahead of time. And so I let them find that as we go. There are so many relevant differences between an ongoing campaign and a season of sequential stories. Dimension 20 does an amazing job of taking a campaign that'll last anywhere from five to 10 to a dozen episodes. And each one of those episodes will have a clear beginning, middle, and an end, a nicely staged fight scene, and just wonderful RP from the entire table. Good table chemistry, you cannot manufacture it. It has to be homebrewed, and it is just a joy to watch. But they're able, with style, to tell a campaign-length story and have it broken up into these chapters that feel like you're making real progress. Part of my job as a GM with designs on a season, I have experience as a screenwriter working on television shows and seasons of television shows and setting up those arcs. And of course, I've devoured Doctor Who and plenty of other Monster of the Week series with their own larger ongoing arcs and the big bads. And I got to tell you, one of my happiest discoveries with this table for Anywhere But Now is how much they are changing things from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. Because there isn't one distinct big bad which they will face every every episode and deal with over the course of the season. There is a antagonist working behind the scenes and they will come up against that a couple of times across the shape of the season and it won't be told in chronological order because wibbly wobbly tiny wimey but what our players have decided what our players have chosen for their priorities have reshaped the order of the episodes we had a guest villain in part two of our first story, this guy named Trip Shine, he was a rogue time agent. The Fixer, our Time Lord hero, was dedicated to, I'm gonna go find him because it's dangerous that he's just out there. Fast forward a couple of episodes, we come across Trip Shine again, but it's not the end of the season. It's still in the first half, but by meeting up with Trip Shine again, resolving the antagonism there and showing another side to the character, Not only does that resolve it, but it frees up space for the rest of the season for the Fixer and his companions to discover more things or get distracted by another mystery that has absolutely nothing to do with them. And I am absolutely tickled with how our players have for themselves decided and latched on to things that they decided was important, you know? Yeah, and if you ever want to bring that character back, you have the the luxury of a nonlinear timeline. Mm -hmm. So if you want to bring him back as an an antagonist again, it's just a version of him that still is an antagonist. (laughs) It's at a a different point in time when he was still bothered by them. He hasn't, uh, you know, made made good with them yet. Um, But yeah, I think I think a player driven timeline is always the best way to go is that you give yourself the structure of the world, the the mechanics of your your setting. Mm -hmm that set you up as a DM to have all the tools that you need. And you can always add more detail to that as you go. You can always construct more room for them to play essentially, but don't, I mean, everyone talks about railroading and it's a little bit overused in what is and isn't railroading because gameplay is not railroading. (laughs) Providing that the story that they're interacting with is not 
railroading. But if you have a, an exact ending in your head, you have an exact way that they have to solve a certain puzzle or solve a certain moment, mm -hmm. that is. And so so giving them all the tools and then letting them play, they I mean, even even an inexperienced player will surprise you. Yes. I, I've always been just shocked by how people figure things out or how they deal with a certain antagonist and, and an antagonist who is not always the active villain. And, and you're talking about villain of the week or monster of the week kind of moments with this overarching plot of this bigger uh, character. I think that's always a good structure for tabletop games as well. Monster of the Week lets you shift focus and keep people on their toes and keep things feeling like they're moving. Mm -hmm. And then when you revisit this character, it it allows you to to not not feel like you're dragging through it. Oh, we spend every time dealing with this person and they keep getting away or they keep doing they keep being an, a problem. And especially with the tools available to someone playing D and D yeah. or a similar game like mm -hmm. that. It's, it's almost impossible for someone to just run away. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there are spells like hold person. There are things that kind of get in your way uh, as a DM from they disappear in smoke again. <laughs> you know, you, you can't you can't do that every session. And so <laughs> so you do have to be very, very flexible with the way you're setting things up to, to have consequence. And and that's a nice thing also about world building is that the consequence of that character's existence can still be present if they're not there. Yeah. Whether that's the monster they set up for you or a journal you found or a rumor you heard or something very small, mm -hmm. there's always room to play with that. Um, but again, just letting the players construct that space and letting the players follow what is most interesting to them will always work in your favor as a GM because if they're excited and they're interested in pursuing that thing, it will allow you to do so, so much more. Yes. And everything you build will feel more successful because they're excited to find that thing out. Well, it feels more successful if and when you are building a new story with your players. Absolutely. Some of these mods I have run for several years. I've been running games of Doctor Who, first and second edition for about 10 years off and on. In my less experienced days, when in my more egotistical days, thinking, well, I'm a professional writer, I know what I'm doing. And having just the one clear-cut, cookie-cutter ending of, well, this is how you finish a game of Doctor Who. Um, and it might be satisfying for them to figure it out and get there, but if they come up with something else that should work and doesn't because a railroading GM didn't think of that or didn't plan for that, that can quickly take the bubbles out of the soda. It really can. I always try to think of that kind of moment in the moment as a DM as an opportunity to reward the mm -hmm. players. And it's something that I do with rolls as well. So you talk a lot about like rolling a 20 or rolling a one, you know, your, your crits. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you roll a one, the, there is a temptation to like do something that feels punishing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think it's an opportunity to reward a failure. Mm -hmm. Like as a player, it's still fun to watch your character fail in a way that is entertaining. And so if you can make both sides of that spectrum work, great. And so when you're talking about, you know, doing doing that kind of victory or failure ending, it doesn't have to be all bad no. <laughs> to, to play out or, or all decided already, like you're saying. If, if you already have your ending decided, insane failures or insane successes, you should be ready to reward that in a flexible way. I've fully stopped writing endings for my sessions, mm -hmm. which is not always the best way to go about it, but but I don't have a, a, a monologue that I do. <laughs> I don't have any sort of structured end to the thing. I know who did the murder, but I don't have the ending to how that moment is gonna play mm -hmm. out. I let it find itself during the session because every time I try to plan something like that, 
it ends in a different room or a different place or with different characters nearby. And it's just much better to give yourself all the tools and then allow your players to construct that ending and be very flexible and accepting of, yeah, my, like you're saying, the, the this perfect script that I wrote didn't pan out, you know, and and it, it turns into an improv exercise, which is also, you know, we're talking GMing. about from the filmmaking perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, that's what GMing is, is improving. And, and then from the filmmaking perspective, that's a great exercise as well, is how much improv is acceptable <laughs> your your actor comes in and completely ignores your script okay that's one thing does it still get the point across does it still work does it still entertain or does it still provide the context necessary for for the story to continue mm-hmm. great and and then in D, it's like my characters have to function that way as the person that i'm playing during as an npc if they're they're throwing questions at you you didn't expect you have to be ready to improv that and still fit the parameters of this sort of script you have in your head, it, conveying the important information. And then when they start asking you things that don't matter at all, you can just have fun with it yeah. and just get as weird as you want. And that's a great time too. It is a great time. We've talked about this before on the show, the idea of writing out an ending in case the good guys do nothing. Like if you do nothing, we have a good idea of what's gonna happen. Yeah. Playing with sci-fi tropes building up expectations and setting the rhythm and the tempo of this is the kind of sci-fi story you're in these are the stakes these are the supporting characters that are that are either here to help or hurt you if we can set up expectations and then go off script <laughs> yeah that's where the magic happens yeah, and even talking about those expectations, it's tempting to keep those to yourself. You wrote the ending for what would happen in this situation, and I know if you don't do anything, then this town burns mm-hmm. or this villain takes over. But conveying that to your table can be just as important. Saying, if you do nothing, then this person will get framed. Or if you do nothing, this town will be in danger of XYZ thing happening. Mm-hmm it gives them the either motive to help or not help or the information that they need because they don't have that, all that background information that you've written down that you have internalized. They don't have that. And that's, it's really important to be able to communicate that effectively. And there's nothing wrong with literally saying, if you do nothing, this is what happens. You can tell as a character, you look at this town, you see the bandits coming. If you do nothing, this town burns. And so setting that up for your, your players is just as important. Absolutely. I find rather than... Uh, spoon feeding the negative outcome, I find that implying it through action, through dialogue, and generally just through painting the picture. To use an example, there's a two-parter that we have run and recorded that'll be coming out in the near future or has come out already, wibbly wobbly, called Hard Time. And the TARDIS winds up on a wasteland. Time is broken. Uh, The planet does not spin. The planet does not move in orbit. It is frozen and locked where it is. And as a result, the planet is crumbling. That's just setting the table. From there, the companions are separated from the Time Lords and they're press ganged into hard labor in something called the Quicks, where months will go by in the span of five minutes over where they're nice and cozy on the ship that is, you know, half a football field away. Setting up these kind of nigh-catastrophic sci-fi conditions and then inviting the players to resist and to fight back and to push back and give as good as they get, if not better, immediately jostles the table in really interesting ways. 
the players remarked after the end of the two-parter that they were expecting the bad guy to get away. And there was an opportunity for him to do that. There were a couple of opportunities for him to do that. But the dice were against him. <laughs> if you've ever been to an arcade and seen someone play with a pachinko machine, drop a ball at the top and it bounces off all these different pins on the way down yeah. and could end up in any one of a dozen different places at, by the time it's bounced to the bottom. Felix Fugit could have gotten away with his own time machine and been a thorn in the side of our heroes down the road in season two. That is not what happened. Felix Fugit <laughs> falls out of a time machine several hundred feet in the air and falls straight down. And I even threw in wibbly-wobbly MacGuffins to make it more interesting. And um, so for the whole stretch of part two, there has been something called an Eisen barrier wall between the companions and the Time Lord, stretching and distorting cause and effect even more than they're already going sideways. Someone, a full-grown person, walks out through the Eisen barrier wall and a four-year-old emerges on the far side. <laughs> A person falls through the falls through the cloud and disintegrates, while the blaster <laughs> they had in their hands clatters to the ground as the blueprints for that blaster. Oh, that's hilarious! You know, like yeah. time is being messed with, and then at the very climax, Felix falls, and because of the other things that have happened by now, the magic misty field, the Eisen barrier wall, evaporates a heartbeat before he reaches it. <laughs> oh man. So he's just dead now. That's wild. Yeah, and then and then like you're saying when when you have a big villain like that and the roles are just against them, it's important mm -hmm. as a DM to be honest with that when it is narratively satisfying. And sometimes yeah, you fudge it when it wouldn't be fun. That happens, but in that kind of moment there's nothing wrong with a villain even if you had plans for them. There's nothing wrong with a villain biting the dust you know whatever you're like, like that's it it's if that's the fun version of that in that yeah. moment just play it out let that happen and, and let that sort of natural flow that's the wonder of these games is the difference between writing a script where it has to be the most narratively satisfying version of it and instead this is a very memorable session now that you've run with this character exactly. who could have been around longer who could have been a real problem who's just gone in a way that's you know, visual and memorable and fun. And that's such a, that's such a good reversal of, of expectations as well. Exactly. And I feel like games that are, that are attached to certain genre expectations lend themselves to really satisfying narrative surprises like that. You know, it's the difference between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. Because when Empire first came out, people went in expecting another Star Wars. They were expecting a lightsaber duel and talk about the Force and some fights in space and everything. And they got those things, but it was still a completely new experience. <laughs> but here's the thing. The, the players during After is talking about, man, I really expected Felix to get away. There was no disappointment in their voices. They were pleasantly surprised to have walked mm -hmm. into this arena of genre expectations and to have them realistically subverted by their own actions, you know? Yeah, and you set, you set a precedent of possibility there, right? Like if you, Ooh, if you feel too railroady and you're, they are rolling, your players are rolling for things and they're like, yeah, either I succeed or I fail, that sets a binary that's less interesting for storytelling, right? And so yeah. once you get to a point where, yeah, I can succeed, I can fail, I can trip, I can 
do something that wasn't really what I intended. This character who is clearly, they have plot armor, they'll be fine, and then they fall to their deaths unexpectedly. That kind of thing is such a good moment to, to I mean, to Game of Thrones it, to, to throw it to that, you know? The idea sure. of no characters are safe. The idea of there's real risk involved mm-hmm. creates real investment from the player yeah. angle to say, oh, oh my God. And so I had, a, I had a table that was, I don't want to say stagnating, but they were getting to the point where they felt invincible. And mm-hmm. I had been doing milestone-based leveling, and we were leveling pretty often because they were new players, and I wanted them to get to try things out. And mm-hmm. we got to a certain point where it's like, I'm going to have to throw something really hard at them to, to you know, really bring the risk of death here. And one of my players came to me and said, hey, I want to fake my character's death. And I was like, <laughs> you, you could not have had the better timing. To th- I mean, it was phenomenal. And so we did, so- it was a fantasy world, but we did some time stuff with this eventually. Nice. Um, but we basically had it look like he fell down into some spinning blades. So there's no body, you know, there's no, there's no oh, way for this guy to still be around. And then he played a different character for two sessions. And so nice. the, the rest of the group was convinced he was dead. It was the first time they'd experienced. And he, we really did play out a whole battle before that. Mm-hmm. So there was real intentional Make it feel earned exactly and uh one of the characters was desperately trying to get over there to revivify him and and save this moment and so we had uh environmental things going on to stop her and it felt very dramatic uh mm-hmm. and you know you raised those stakes a little bit and that one was i don't want to call it's it like the opposite of plot armor like we knew he was gonna die but if they mm-hmm. had succeeded there were still real roles in there and so if she had succeeded in in rolling over some things and and bypassing those obstacles she still would have been able to save him and and then we would have done something else later and so to be flexible and truthful with those roles is the unique situation we have with this kind of medium right you don't you don't get that with the script Uh, i guess you could get it at an improv show but it would be a wildly weird improv show if you went to like you know second city and they were like we're gonna play D &D now fantasy improv oh man now i do want to go watch that I used to be in a long-form improv team called Start Trekkin'. We would make up hour-long improvised episodes of the original series with uniforms and sound effects from the show and props from the toy store and would do a whole episode that kind of felt like a funnier version of a show of the original series with a new cast of characters. It was never, you know, Kurt, Spock, and Bones or anything like that. But having those genre expectations and those sci-fi tropes at our fingertips gave us a lot to play with. What I will say though, is that a failure can add more of an impact, be a more resonant experience for the player than just a simple victory. Yeah, and you're talking about genre expectations, absolutely. You, you set up a, a sci-fi or even a fantasy adventure and those end with the protagonist succeeding and to flip that on its head is so fun and so effective. It reminds me always mm-hmm. of, I don't know if you ever read this, but it was sort of a sci-fi series, Pendragon, DJ McHale. Tell us more about it. It was a Harry Potter contemporary timeline-wise, not story-wise, um, about a young man. He's hopping dimensions and it, it falls into similar territory as Doctor Who, you know, there's mm-hmm. time going on. Some of the dimensions are also a past Earth, whatever. But I, I don't remember a ton of that story, but I do remember that in the third or fourth book, they lose, and they lose bad. And mm. that becomes, again, like we're talking about this Game of Thrones feeling of it, no one is safe. Not only are your characters individually not safe, the world's safety is not guaranteed, and your nope. victory is not guaranteed. 
And I actually was just listening to one of your earlier episodes and you were talking a little bit about that expectation of protagonists succeeding and winning. And I think that I haven't run a campaign like this where, where it has ended with the villain winning. But to get to do that and then maybe that villain winning does not mean that your party is wiped out. Maybe it means that they just succeed in their goal and the world continues. That sounds so interesting to me. And there is a D&D a &D module. Um, oh, I wish I could remember the name of it, but it is essentially the, the sort of standard world of D&D &D if all of the villains had succeeded. So there's, you know, Tiamat and Strahd and all of these things going on that normally have sort of an endpoint narratively. And instead, those villains are ruling the world. And that's Ooh. such a fun way to explore the, that world. Obviously, that would be a, an insanely high-level campaign for your characters to be able to affect any change, but it would still be so fun to explore. Um, if you're in my current campaign, cover your ears or, or hang up here, and la, I'll tell la, you we can la, jump la, back la, in. La, la, la. But yeah, I, I am sort of setting up a, a similar situation where defeating this current big bad sets mm. up the real next big bads because he is the thing that's sort of scaring them away. He's sort of a gatekeeper in a way. And so mm -hmm. once he's gone, the real monsters are here. And so that that sort of allows your world to exponentially become more dangerous. And also narratively, it's a fun way to tie from one big bad to the next. Um, and it makes you think, oh, should we have let him stick around? Was he the lesser of two evils? You know, you get this sort of thing going on with your characters to really explore the the villains of your world. I would love mm -hmm. to, to end on a, the villain winning. I feel like as a player, I wouldn't like that very much, but I would love to say, and you know, and that's it. And they won, and that's the end. And some some stories are sad stories. Sorry, gang. Like that's that would be such a fun if you could set it up effectively. It would be such a fun story to to pan out. Can you imagine like the next campaign picking up twenty years later, and all of their children oh, have God. picked up the picked up the quest after twenty years of living under a fascist lich? Yeah, one of your old characters comes back as a mentor character, and you have you can have like a cameo kind of thing in there. I thought it would be so fun. The nice thing about running a game that has mods and like smaller stories to tell as, as part of a season versus a longer campaign, there are other ways to drop the ball and fail in your objective that don't just mean a villain has triumphed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In Hard Time and its second part, Rift Apart, they are there to try and rescue another Time Lord whose TARDIS has broken down and can't leave. That's the big goal that they have. And the fact that there is a tin pot despot sitting on a little volcano, lording it over everyone else there, um, is simply the problem they have to deal with before they can try and rescue the other Time Lord. Yeah, it's almost the B plot. You're, you're giving them a it thing is. that they, they can explore if they want or as much as it overlaps. And it informs the world, but really you're exploring this other storyline as it exactly. affects your major story. And I'm sure with something like another Time Lord, you have so many other questions uh, that, that arise from their existence and the point of time that they're in and that you're in and why you're in the same place and that kind of stuff. I think there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of fun stuff to do with that. There really is. And to go back to like expectations versus execution, I was expecting the Dodger. That was the Time Lord in question. I was expecting the Dodger to have more of a presence during the episodes. And he wasn't quite a cameo, but he was very much on the periphery. He did not make it out alive. <laughs> he fell out of time. He fell out <laughs> he fell through a rift. That is that is that is a hard thing to come back from. Oh yeah. 
I mean, it, it's a fun creative death, too, because what is, you know, the consequence of that is your, oh, oh no, we just lost someone that was so interesting or that we really cared about if you get them invested in that character. Or it's, oh, no, what have what have they become or where did they go? What became of them? It, and there's so many opportunities to play with that directly in this kind of medium. Absolutely. Like, sci-fi, there is baked in an extra layer of suspension of disbelief of, sure, that could happen. Yeah. And, and, and also, like, you're talking about expectations with a, a pre-established setting. So you're, you're doing Doctor Who, and I've run uh, Edge of the Empire campaigns, which is Star Wars. People mm-hmm. have such an idea of how that world works and what the rules are. And so when you have a mysterious hooded figure in your Star Wars world, there's a pretty quick assumption that that is a Jedi or a Sith that mm-hmm. is watching or nearby. And so for that to be something else, you get to subvert that expectation or to follow up with it, it's rewarding because they go, oh, I knew that because I know the world or whatever the, the bit is. You, you get to reward those expectations. Can mm-hmm. be really effective at a table of people who think that they understand the setting or if they're new to it, it's a great way to re-explain things like we were talking about, I think at the very beginning of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> There's a shorthand, obviously, for a table that is just chock-a-block with experienced in-universe players. But there's also something very refreshing about coming at it from the logistical side of the table where they don't already know what the monster is and instead have to deal with the leavings of the monster, the claw marks that it leaves behind before you can figure out what it is, how to stop it, what the rules are of that particular creature. And someone new new to that is... is... A fun it's like watching a show with someone for the first time a show or a movie that you love exactly. and they, you're, you're bringing them into it and they get to to experience it through their eyes for the first time uh, and then they get to the end they go I don't know I don't think I'll watch that again and you're like okay you're not invited over anymore <laughs> <laughs> that's fine people people don't have to love everything that we bring them but it is how we find the people who love what we bring especially now I think that's a very modern take on not just tabletop gaming but sort of like the nerd kingdom the geek culture is that yeah you can you can like one part of it not the whole or you can dip your toe in and experience it new i grew up in san diego and i grew i grew up going to comic con when it was still like the old guys in a basement and that was not always the most welcoming space which is actually one of the reasons it took me a while to be able to get into DD. i felt like i didn't know enough i didn't have the experience to get the experience, which now unfortunately is the job market, right? So I guess that's universal. But but the idea of like, you can just try something out and there are no wrong opinions about this piece of media, just that was not the case. There was a right no. and wrong way to look at, you know, uh, Evangelion or, or whatever thing you're talking about. And now it's much more welcoming, which especially with tabletop games. I mean, the tabletop community is, I think, on the more welcoming side in the person to person world. I guess the online is a whole other beast, but yes. At finding an actual table and, and working with those kinds of people, those people want more people to play and they want new people at their tables. And so that's so lovely. I mean, I like I don't I don't remember that being geek culture. And so now that it is, I, mm-hmm. I am so happy that that's that's the way it is, that you can say, hey, come watch this thing with me and you can have an actual discussion about, you know, I liked it, but I didn't I didn't love XYZ part or I would have done this differently or whatever. And maybe that's the filmmaker side of like, oh, you know, they really missed an opportunity to tell this story um, in itself that, oh, they missed an opportunity there. That is kind of 30 percent of inspiration the itch to tell a story that you have not heard satisfyingly told. 
Oh yeah, I love that. Especially when you're talking about a, a tabletop game in a universe that exists. You go, oh, you know what would have been really cool is an episode like this. I wish we'd gotten to do that. Or, oh, you know what would be great is we got to watch a Star Wars movie with this kind of cast, these kinds of characters. I think that's such a fun way to, to look at that. But yeah, running a season of a game with this franchise does give me that wish fulfillment of I never saw an episode where a Time Lord who didn't have a thousand years of experience under his belt knew exactly what he was doing every room he walked into. And that itch for discovery is missing, I think, from some Doctor Who, not all of it. There was a point in Matt Smith's era, which I was especially fond of, someone had gotten him angry and the experience for him was novel. He's like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. Yeah, I, I remember that, yeah. The, it was the first time the character, like this incarnation of the character had actually hit a speed bump. The rest of the time, it's all practiced speeches and don't ever try to play games with me. Don't ever, ever think that you could. And there's that level of hyper-competence that's in place. And that that's great. That works for a mysterious Time Lord who's been traveling the galaxy for eons because that's literally what they've been doing. But with someone like the Fixer, with other Time Lords in the doctoral program, they are new at this. They are inexperienced. It is a discovery for them. And that is that is some of the really the really good stuff I'm trying to find yeah. especially with this team yeah and when you're when you're talking about the show versus a tabletop game world the show really leans on companions as that kind of thing they are the ones who've not experienced the universe they are the ones who are, are having their eyes open to this and they're the ones who are in danger essentially because you you do start to feel like the doctor well the doctor's not gonna die or lose or whatever we know that he did, you know, connects again with River in the future or whatever, you know, like all these all these sort of ongoing beats that mean he will continue existing in some form. And and so the companions are the ones that not that they're your per, your perspective character, but they they add the risk, they add the exploration and they add the the wonder, I guess. And it's not always perfectly successful, but it leans you towards like what if you had that kind of a time lord who is not the doctor or what was his youth like? I do think that like the, the companion characters are, are at least when you're looking at a tabletop world and you're looking at thing, other systems, D&D &D and things like that, like companions line up more in my mind with what a player character is and the way that they experience the world. And that's, I think like if I was trying to find a beat that I was trying to mimic from that in, in the storytelling aspect of these games, Amy and Rory, like their endings, re I mean, they would be pretty tragic endings for your campaign characters, but the idea of the Centurion ending for him, that is such a good like character through point. If you were to look mm -hmm. at that as a D&D &D character, you're really paying attention to what he values. So if it's your player, what your player values for their character, what carries that emotion, what would feel complete for them but maybe not the thing they were expecting because you have this big sci-fi adventure where you're running around and for him to end up sitting guard in a centurion's outfit for, for hundreds of years is it defies your expectation it's not the the picture you would have drawn for him in his first appearance but it does feel cohesive and so to get to play those those sort of endings out i think is a great way to sort of mimic your source material as well your players and your audience are looking for that structure that's familiar to them 
and that's a great a great way to mimic that is in the short term and the long term we're talking about monster of the week and then also your big villain same idea you know you want you want those endings to feel appropriate for your characters and then in the long run the big endings you want them to feel like you really came together all their their whole story felt cohesive and and clear i do think part of a good companion is affecting the trajectory of their time lord and unfortunately i'm speaking mostly about the game and not the show because the doctor as a character regenerations notwithstanding are kind of static but you're right that that it doesn't always affect majorly but it does i think give you the window right as an audience member to those emotional moments so you're talking about this anger moment right and for him to get there, there has to be risk. And if he's traveling alone, that risk is is mitigated. Muted, there, yeah. there are episodes where he travels alone and he attaches to the people who he's visiting that that sort of work. But it is always the ones he's emotionally invested in that, that hit the heaviest. And so it less than like, I see what you're saying about them change. Like you want that. You want that character evolution and that they are the the avenue for perspective for the doctor or the time lord that you're talking about to, to change and to evolve. But, yeah. but in the show, they don't always function as that. They function as the emotional window for us. Uh, but as, if you're playing at a table and you're playing with companions or players or, or whatever your angle is, them mm-hmm. being avenues of, of evolution for each other, that, that your players and the characters they're playing, even, even outside of a Doctor Who scenario at a table of any of these games, you want your players to be invested enough that they themselves are, I mean, maybe changed for the better by playing this game, but that their characters at least are influencing each other. You know, you want that kind of this sort of evolution of character to not just come from your world, to not just come from the story that I wrote down, but to come from the player's direct influence. And and yeah. a, a really low-key version of that in my current campaign, again, a divination wizard, wonderful player. Actually, this whole table is fantastic. One of my players is playing this divination wizard. She's an old lady turtle, pulls um, tarot cards and does readings. Okay. And nice. she actually brings a deck of tarot cards to the sessions. And she'll throughout things making decisions and whatever pull cards and and make an interpretation of what she thinks about a person or what she decides to do and sometimes she'll share them with the group and sometimes she won't the ones that she has shared with the group are so freakishly spot on every (laughs) single time whether it's a thing that i've shared with the group or not sometimes she'll like call out a character who's who's secretly evil or whatever with these cards and it's shocking how how accurate they've been and because of that because we have recognized multiple times now at the table that these are really accurate and and surprisingly so it has changed the way the other characters think about the game because they ask more do you oh pull a card on this or oh what do the cards say they think more mm. about prophecy and fate and can you influence those things and so it also just gives you opportunity to mess with that but that sort of even at a gameplay perspective of these characters have changed the way they approach situations because of one character one player really effectively using their tools and then Mm -hmm. that as a dm i mean i couldn't have asked for a better storytelling tool this the perspective of divination and that and prophecy is i as a as a storyteller that tool is so fun it's it's so different and so unique to this setting to get to play with that and so heavily influenced by your players that so often she will pull a card in a session or a god will speak to one of the other characters and you get to throw a wrench in the works that the mm-hmm. two prophecies don't line up. And so to give them the tools to influence each other in their decisions, well, I saw this in the future, but my god wants this, you know, those sorts yeah. of, that sort of push and pull of fate and of character is such a great way to, to get them to push each other. And then also, you know, you want emotional beats to influence each other. You want your your players to feel affected emotionally 
And it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be... I think sometimes when you say that, people are like, yeah, make them cry. And it's like, well, yeah, okay, if that's the point, you don't always have to make your players cry. Sometimes affecting emotionally can be positive, <laughs> that they feel Absolutely. they feel connected to each other and the world, and that there's a character in the world that they love now and that they feel invested in. And that, that doesn't mean you have to use that as a tool to kill them and make them feel like the bad guy's the ultimate evil. Sure, you can do no. that, but you don't have to. And so, so getting an emotional response and getting them to, to really hold that world and those characters in their heart in a way that affects them as players is like, it's the ultimate goal, right? Is that they walk away from the table, not just, oh yeah, I remember one time this happened. It's like, wow, when that happened, I remember the feeling. I remember walking away from that, like, what are we gonna do? And that is such a, a dramatic emotional response that you, I just, you don't get, I mean, there are video games that give great emotional pull. I obviously talking a lot about the last of us right now that mm. those sort of single player investment that you line up with characters who are not yourself to, to experience this story and you're physically influencing it, but it still tells a story that whether or not you make choices that pre-exists and you're not, that there aren't really multiplayer versions of that. You know, when you're no. playing Fortnite, you're not, they're not telling a story together other than did we win or did we die? I guess it's like the very basic version of battle Royale or hunger games, but, but there's less drama to that. I guess you could put some music over it and make a little hype reel. Don't give away our secrets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but but I, I, you know, you, to to get them invested in that that story is so unique to the medium, and that they are equal parts to creating that emotion and that emotional influence and pull and continuity. I don't, I can't think of another medium that you get that in. I mean, even in filmmaking and, and screenwriting, like you're talking about, you know, even if you're at a table and you have a bunch of people who are writing together, you still know what that end product is. That end product, yeah. and then and then it goes through actors and directors, and and that's another layer of filters, and the thing that was in your head changes and changes, but at the end there is a product, and you can't pre-write that product in D and D. That thing that you get at the end, that story that you all told together, is mm -hmm. unpredictable, and you you could not even begin to say, "I'm going to sit down and write my campaign, start to finish, and I will nail it." Here's writing a book, which you know I'm sure people do write books that way. If you roll dice to write your book, awesome. Um, I, <laughs> I have to try that sometime. I think that would be fun. One of the best writing tips I ever got for writing a scene, your average narrative scene can end one of four ways. The protagonist gets what they want. The protagonist gets what they want, but with a problem involved. The protagonist fails to get what they want, and the protagonist fails to get what they want, and things are even worse. <laughs> Nine out of ten times, the fourth choice is the most interesting. No, the hero failed and things are worse now. How are they going to get out of it now? I feel like we've been seeing a lot of where that scene is not even about the protagonist anymore, especially in, in television media. You get an ensemble piece that, that then becomes about a group and you have your protagonist, whether or not they get what they want or what their situation is, you sort of change perspective a little bit and, and to get to hop around and make sure that everyone's time is, everyone has their protagonist moment to answer one of those four ways. Uh, is such a fun way to look at it too, because you have you know multiple characters at your table, and even in Doctor Who in the show, the Doctor is the main character, but the companions still need their narrative answers, their narrative moments to feel mm -hmm. whole. But yeah, I think I think like looking at a character that way in their in their moment, what do they get is such a good angle, or do they not get what they want? And when you're looking at your characters at the table, even in the moment, to to think, okay, well, I want to reward them, but they rolled middle. So yeah. reward with some success or reward with a consequence is such a it's such a good tool. I think those four endings are kind of the, you know, one to five, five to ten, ten to fifteen, fifteen to twenty ranges on your die when you're rolling that. Yeah. 
with the, you know, with crits, then you do something special, I guess, if you like to. I am not eager to kill characters, PC or otherwise, but that does not mean I am afraid to hurt them. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand that. I think that, like, the, the only consequence being death is, uh, it's hyperbole, right? Like, you, you'd see that in RPG horror stories and posts like that where people are like, my DM killed my character off with no reason, with no chance for me to roll against it or whatever. And honestly, in, in that scenario, death is the best reward because you can say, all right, well, I'm done. My character's dead. I'm, I'm out. I'm walking away. But 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 when you have other consequences, you know, injury or, or beyond that emotional impact, the, those are just as solid of consequences. Death is not the only way to punish your, your players' characters. Not at all. Like, in a recent game, um, the Fixer and Trip, this is Rift Apart, they are trying to make their way across an open quarry field during an earthquake. And because of the rolls that they wind up rolling, Trip sprains his ankle and the Fixer breaks his ankle. And it was so funny because my spouse and I love watching Star Trek Strange New Worlds and there's been some narrative overlap that made me do a double take where a character was shot in the leg with a phaser and were basically laid out. On a show, that kind of injury would be like, leave me, go on by yourself. And in a game, it's we have to keep going. We have to press on together. And the difference, the fact that the fixer can no longer easily or at all move on his own power makes his contributions that much more desperate because now he's an advisor. Now he's telling Trip where to go. He has to adapt to his narrowed options. And that is so much more interesting than giving him a clear, rosy garden path. It really is. I, I did think for a moment, because we were just talking about death, that when you said two characters broke, broke their ankles, you were going to say, so we, we put them down. And, and, <laughs> and I got really nervous about what was going to happen in your story. I, there was something about the broken angles. I was like, that's that's horses, right? All right, they're done. Make them a new That's blue, horses. But, uh, no, I, yeah, that's not good story. Centaurs don't... across the, the planet just <laughs> shivered with fear. Yeah, don't do that in your campaign. Oh, if somebody breaks their ankle, don't. I mean, yeah. eh, let your players do what they're going to do, but make it make sense. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely I think consequence has to go beyond death, right? Because if the only fear is death, then then all you're really setting up is the reward for heroic sacrifice. And that's great in some moments, but that's just the only trump card your players have is, okay, well, if it gets bad enough, I'll throw myself into the fire and save some people and die, and then I'll play a new character. But, you know, if you if you set up more consequences, and that, again, coming all the way back to the beginning of what we were talking about, the, the player setup, knowing what counts as consequence for your players and their mm -hmm. specific characters they're invested in something else. One of my players in this current campaign is he's playing a fantastic character that's essentially Nacho Libre. Nice. Um, which is such a fun take. And it comes up every now and then that, you know, there are these orphans back home that he takes care of, as Nacho does. And to wave that consequence in front of his face, that the current big bad is a mind flare. And if this thing overtakes the, the world, those orphans are endangered is so easy, right? It's such an easy, quick pull and it it's not you'll die it's well remember the thing that you're fighting for the thing that you care the most about that is the immediate consequence and you know mm -hmm. to, to sort of dangle that in front of them is such a good a good consequence and then you surprise them with the the quick the quick consequences like you're talking about a broken ankle an injury that's non-lethal that changes the way that you approach a, a puzzle or a moment mm -hmm. is such a good way to keep your players on your toes 
Plus, it also rewards them down the road because now they know what they can survive. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Adversity, I find, makes for stronger PCs down the road. And I'm not just talking about accruing experience points or distinctions <laughs> for your character sheet. I'm talking about an experience a character has that they can draw on later on is like, no, we're gonna get through this. We've been through worse. Yeah, yeah. And and talking about experience points, I that's one of the reasons that I run Milestone is that mm -hmm. negative experiences, you know, fighting, killing something, that doesn't have to be the entirety of ex what makes your character grow, right? And so I love to mix in a, a session of, of fun, of uh, a festival, of a party, of something that is, you expect, oh, at the, the end of this, a monster will show up. Uh, nope, this is just fun. We're going to do mini games for six hours, you know? And and you really sit down and play out a fun, happy memory for those characters. And in those moments, you get to reward creative uses of their tools, of spells that they have, of skill checks, of different items that they've acquired, you know, and, and moments like you're talking about, things that they remember, other people and stories that they remember from the world and rewarding the use of those things in a non-combat, non-dread-inducing situation is a great <laughs> way for their, their character to grow. You know, like, I, Absolutely. I grow from the good things in my life. I think a, a character should too. And so by doing that, you say, okay, well, milestone, you know, at the end of that session, oh, we didn't kill any rats. Well, that's okay. You still get some experience. You know, you still level up. Uh, I never do numbered experience anymore for exactly that reason. I think it's like Brennan Lee Mulligan was talking about that, where he said, if you had a society based on wizards who who become more powerful by killing things, they would just have like a room for bludgeoning rats and they would just go in there all day <laughs> and like kill rats. I got to go recharge my scepter. I'm going to go kill 28 and a half rats. I'll be back. Yeah, I got to get higher level so I can use the next spell or whatever. So you just hear them going in there and hear squealing or whatever. Like, yeah, like that's not rewarding as a story. So why why play your your levels like that why why have your character structured around that so so instead to reward good and bad and, and reward creative thinking in that way i think that's i mean that's definitely the way to go absolutely so tommy what can you tell us about the test table how's getting that ready going for you oh i love that i it, that is such a fun project idea and i i think i don't know we, we didn't really talk about when this will come out but i actually think it will we'll have done one or two by the time that this airs nice so the idea came from creating content because i was talking about stealing and I use a lot of online tools when I run my personal tables. Mm -hmm. If you're doing something online and you're publishing stuff, you have to pay the people who make that stuff. That's what I'm saying. You got it. You got to be paying people. But if you're doing something for fun on the side and you can pay for stuff, great. If you're using, you know, tools that pre-exist and stories that pre-exist, great. Like we're talking about one shots, sort of things that you can slot into your adventure as as one-off moments of a story that fits in very flexible ways of, of a, a murder mystery, of a whodunit, you know, that, that slots into any world. I wanted to make those, and I thought, every time I've read one of these, I, I have so many questions about the process. What made you include this character? What made you, you know, center it around this villain or god? And so I thought, well, it would be really fun to use Twitch like that. And so hmm. what we're doing is the first, so like, let's say it's, I think it will be on Wednesdays, but um, schedules are, are in the air right now. The first session is just me and the audience and we're building an adventure together. So sometimes I'll use mm -hmm. polls, this thing or this thing, you know, really simple. And I'm talking through what I'm doing on there so that you can sort of see uh, what the thought process is, why I'm including certain things. Then the following week, I run that with a different group of people. Um, mm -hmm. I have some people who are Twitch streamers and some who just love the games. Uh, who are really interested, who, who we're really excited to, to have on. Um, and so we'll play through that adventure again on stream. Nice. And then the following session, I will bring that adventure back and we'll make some edits because every time I run a session that's a new adventure, I'm like, wow, I really needed 
this tool and I didn't prepare that or wow, this one thing I put in there really did not work. <laughs> That's what I run mm. into the most is, oh, I had a monster and I put him up against a group of people and man, it did not have enough health or the way it did damage was too widespread or it didn't really fit this room that you put him in. And so mm -hmm. to get to adjust those and say, you know, if you run this, here's what you do. And then we make all of those tools available. So the adventure is set into a one sheet and formatted for public use. And so it's just downloadable and available for anybody who wants to throw that into their adventure. That is really, really cool. That is really, really cool. Yeah, thank you. I think I think it'll be fun to, hopefully fun to watch, but it'll definitely be fun to make. See, here's how I know you're going to be fine, because you enjoy the making of it. Like, <laughs> I've, I've been in creative business of one kind or another for close to 20 years in various fields, and the people that just want to get it done, they just want to get it done so they can have something they can show. Like, it's great to have a work ethic, but the people that genuinely enjoy the crafting, the time they spend putting it together in the freaking first place, those are the creatives I really enjoy talking with. Those are the ones I really feel have that extra pepper in their step. <laughs> yeah. Even if things go pear-shaped, even if things go completely sideways, it can be a learning experience and it can be, okay, well, I know what not to do next time. I'm a big fan of the mistake it till you make it approach. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and I think there's a great, you know, if you enjoy the process of making it, I spent the last year developing a TV show and then we have a writer's strike. So, you know, there's there's a bit of a, a stall going on here and a SAG strike coming when, and very pro-union here. So good, get get your money. Uh, get but, paid. Get paid. But, uh, you know, it puts a little stall in the sales process for sure. Uh, mm. But I am also one of those people who has a huge notebook of ideas and and films that I've developed and written the script out and I I don't always have the push to finish that and so this this last year has been getting those things off the ground and and so this next year is all right let's actually make some of this stuff so you have to have a balance right of of doing those mm -hmm. two things together but I do think there's even even if you never make it or or not that you never make it but you don't make it right when you think you're going to uh, whether it's content or film or even just a and d campaign you write this idea down Taika Waititi was talking in an interview about how he writes a whole idea out and he puts it away and he comes back to it like a year later and then he doesn't mm. reread it he writes it from memory and the parts that stick with him are are the important parts are the parts that are working and then the parts that fade out those don't work those don't stick and i i had been unintentionally doing that same thing <laughs> for years where i'd write a script and then uh oh, you know i'm not gonna be able to make this right now i'll come back to it later and even with D stuff i think that that works so well to say, oh, you know, this monster would be so fun. I'd love to do something with a with Tiamat. Oh, I would love to use Tiamat, the five-headed dragon god. What a fun time that would be. And then, oh, well, my campaign's not going to get there or my campaign, your campaign falls apart because of scheduling. You know, that happens to everybody. Save it for later. Save that later for later and keep that idea in your head. And you're going to come up with stuff just by letting it simmer on the back. You know, you'll, you'll come back to it and go, oh, you know, it would have been even better. And if you'd done it in the first place, you wouldn't have gotten to add that little element in there. So I think, I think giving things the time is, is good. And if you enjoy making it, none of that time is wasted time. Not at all. Not at all. Yes, time spent on creative pursuits is time well spent, so long as it doesn't get in the way of living or making a living or doing the things that we need to do to be functioning members of society. Don't steal people's stuff. You know, AI has its place, but go learn how to draw. It's okay to be bad. I think that's also good DM advice and, and GM advice of any, any kind is, you know, it's okay to be bad. Don't wait until you think you're going to be great at it to do it. Just sit around a table with your friends, do it, be bad at it, I don't, I don't do voices, 
but I don't do character voices unless I have something really dumb and zany because I can't really nail accents and that can be a slippery slope to offensive. So I'm, I don't even try anymore. So the only character voices I do are like screaming little kobolds and stuff, you know? Gotcha. But, you know, you don't have to have every element perfect. Find the things that you're good at and, you know, push that part and make that the make that your comfort zone. Make that the thing that keeps you safe and keeps your game rolling. And then the rest of it, learn as you go and steal, yeah. steal, 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 steal. Because everything that's out there, there's so many tools that will help you and you can use them as a crutch until you are excited enough and, and you feel you've gained enough of those tools on your own to do it yourself and then try it out. And then if you fail, do it again. Do it again, do it again, do it again. Every disappointment, every unexpected outcome on a creative pursuit can teach us something. It can teach us how we react to something upsetting. It can teach us how to try something differently. It can show us how important something is to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I started out as an actor and I was certain, I was 100% certain that that was gonna be my future. And then I learned that voice acting could be more my speed and more my in my wheelhouse and writing became more and more and more of a part of my life. And like I you there was a time in my life where I was doing something like six different community theater shows in a year and I did not stop to catch my breath from the end of one show to the start of rehearsals for the next because I was young and I had the energy and I was lonely and I didn't had I didn't think there were other ways to be productively spending my time and did some truly wonderful theater and I don't miss it. <laughs> I don't miss being on stage. Like if I don't write for 2 days, I'm going to go stir crazy. If I don't get into a booth and spend some time putting one of these stories together, like I feel like I'm letting myself down in some way. I think that's so interesting um, that you you've sort of followed the natural flow to to new things where I I did that in reverse. I went to school for directing, and the reason mm -hmm. I did that was because at I went to Chapman, great school. Um where the directing program touches all parts of production. And so mm -hmm. I got to learn about editing and sound design at, you know, to a degree that I wouldn't have if I had specialized in something else. And so I was like, I'm not going to be a director. I, th there are three people in the world who get to be directors and I'm not James Cameron. So like, you know, I don't have money. I don't have connections in the industry. That's just not going to mm -hmm. be my place. And so I did that. So I'd have all the tools and having all those tools is what got me my first jobs in production. And I started working in entertainment marketing and doing commercials and doing post-production stuff. And now I'm coming around to doing directing again and actually that being the viable career path for me, which is like wild that I was like, no, I'm never going to get to do that. Uh, nobody cares what I have to say or what stories I want to tell. And now it's like, actually, yeah, people do care. And, and there are people who I work with who are fantastic and collaborative and, and they, those teams work. And so to get to do that again is just so fun. Um, and, and you get some wild. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I mean, it's still on the path, right? Like I'm not you, nobody's going to see a movie for me in the theaters this year. But but maybe in two years, maybe we're, we're, we're on the path. So uh, if anybody wants to throw a million dollars at me and fund a movie, hit me up. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's, that, that's the hardest part. And I'm not a fundraiser. So, so that's just that's a skill that I need to learn. And there's tons of stuff online that I can steal, steal, steal. And I'm not talking about stealing actual money talk about stealing the methods to get money i'm not going to rob a bank 
FBI. Yeah, copying the methods. Copying the methods. It's not like they don't have them anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I am going to take them from, they can't use them anymore. They're mine now. (laughs) This is, Kickstarter's only for me, is what I'm saying. (laughs) Everybody else, get off there. No, but yeah, that that idea. Welcome to Tommy's Kickstarters. Yeah, that's it. And it's just four of my movies on the front page, and they're all different, and they're all for $250 million, and half that's for me. Um, no, but but the idea of getting to to come back to that and and all of those experiences, just like we're talking about with all those failures, all the experiences along the way, your acting experience, even though you might not be doing acting on stage anymore, that is an incredibly valuable tool for voice acting, for performance, and for tabletop games, for GMing. And to, to get to use all of those is so great. The practice of figuring out how to get into a character's head taught me how to get into a character I had created on the page and see things from their perspective and understand why they're making their choices and what is coming out of their mouths. And and writing wise, I think like having acted, it's such a valuable experience to know the limitations of hearing a conversation in your head, to know mm-hmm. when you say, okay, this has to, I gotta take this to a table read, or I need to sit down with a buddy of mine and read this conversation back and forth. Because mm-hmm. you 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 know read you turn into a sounding board. You exactly. Read the dialogue aloud. And if you read it to yourself so many times, you're like, yeah, this makes sense. And then you hear someone else read it, and you're like, oh my god, that is nothing. Oh. That oh. or that's that's what I sound like when I talk to myself in the shower, or like I was I was using the voice I talk to my dog with. Like that, <laughs> you, you, you're like that. No one talks like this. And it's a it's a job interview scene or whatever. And you're like, are you good? Like I'm good at my job. And nobody talks like that. Like how did I end up here? And that's just from like cyclical writing and and having that experience on stage and improv, you know, the limitations of sitting in a room to the point where you can yeah. do that to the point where it's effective and then also step away from it and use other tools that you've learned along the way to, to perfect your script, to, to make the scene work or to mm-hmm. set up your scenario for your table in a way that allows your players to enjoy those improv tools and those conversations more. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like my experience as a screenwriter where the job is to not write a novel, but to write a blueprint you're just giving the bones of what is needed to paint the picture, establish the tone, set the characters, and then go. I love that that phrase of as a, that you're setting up a blueprint. I haven't heard that, and I, I, I love that, and I love that for a table, too, because one of the things that as, as a DM that I struggle with and that I make really intentional efforts to subvert is... Um, or to stop myself from doing it. it's not subversion, but you know, but to stop myself from doing it is I, I will talk and talk and talk and talk if you let me. And one of the most powerful tools at a table is silence, is to set mm. up a moment and then let your players handle it. Let your players talk it out. That's the game, is that they are the ones playing the game. And it can be really tempting to not only monologue in character, but to monologue out of character, to to establish so much going on. And then you you realize you're talking back and forth as an NPC, you know, to yourself as another NPC for 20 minutes. You're like, oh my God, my table just listened to my mad ramblings where instead you want them to be engaging in those conversations and to even remove yourself. I mean, my favorite moments at a table are two players talking, having a conversation amongst themselves. Yeah, that, that I'm not involved in anymore. That is fully yeah. plot driven. That is fully invested. I mean, that is out of this world when you when you see that happen. And, and it's like an improv moment where they're really in the moment as their characters. And as a director to see somebody really feel mm-hmm. their character and feel that motivation and understand the tools and the world that they have and use all mm-hmm. of those. That's where the magic happens. Yeah, you're like, okay, let's go make a movie. And they're like, I'm an accountant. I don't want to <laughs> do that. <laughs> like, that's such a great moment to say, well, you you just did something amazing. And in that same way, I, I, like post-game talk, just because I talked myself into this, to, to congratulate moments like that. 
to come yeah, back to your we table. We did that on, every episode. Yeah, 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 to come back on Discord for your own private tables and say, hey, before we schedule next week, I want to say that thing you did is so cool. One of my players has been doing our recaps uh, on his own volition, and it's an amazing thing because it's almost in character perspective. Because mm. sometimes he misses things, sometimes he gets things I didn't really mean to put out there, but those mm. work so well, and it's such that it's that extra mile, you know, that really you're embracing the world. Like the the overlap of filmmaking and tabletop games is so heavy that that we get into. I mean, a director screenwriter conversation between the two of us is like there's so much to explore and to talk about that overlaps and and isn't just hey, hey have you seen this movie that feels like this and mm-hmm. isn't just hey have you um, ever done this in a D&D game I think there's so much really interesting overlap I love talking about this stuff and I love pulling film people into D&D that have not done it before um, mm. I, that that's so fun uh, to get to you know embrace that that world with them and, and shock them at what that's like and, and wow yeah okay I see how this overlaps and also, I, you know, this isn't for me is a, is a totally fine answer, but then they check that off and they get to tell their friends they play D&D over the weekend. And then they go see the D&D movie and they have a little bit more, you know, of a, of a in, an attachment to it, I guess. Mm. I hear that. Tommy, thank you so much for coming on our show today. It has been a genuine pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Yeah, you too. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for, for being here today. It's It's been a real treat. Definitely. Thank you. And finally, to our listeners, another big thank you for sharing your precious time with us. If you feel it's been well spent, please share the joy of GMing with your friends who are looking to enjoy themselves. You can email your questions for future episodes at anywherebutnowpodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like me to run a game of Doctor Who for you, reach out on startplaying.games. Links to everything for me and for Tommy in the doobly-doo. If you like what you hear, leave a review, rate the show, and follow us on Twitter at anywherebutnow with an underscore at the end, and wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us, I'm Casey Jones. Thanks so much, and have a great day.